calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. The Astrea Trilogy Written and read by Seymour Hamilton Book Two, The Men of the Sea Chapter Eight, in which Cygnus reaches the city of the sea. Astrea awoke from a dream in which he was searching hopelessly for someone he would never see again. He was just about to see who it was when the dream faded, leaving him with a deep sense of loss. Though it was still dark, he pulled on his clothes and headed up to the deck, where he stood holding onto the rail, staring into the phosphorescence in the ship's wake, letting the swirling patterns soothe his mind. At daybreak the wind fell away as if they had sailed through an invisible doorway. One moment Cygnus was heeled over on the port tack, the next she was upright, barely making steerage way. Oron appeared on deck and stood like a black pillar, his hood over his head. "'You're up early, Estrella,' he said. "'I reward you. Go aloft!' Estrella blinked once, repeated the formula response, and made his way to where sailors were rigging a bosun's chair. He sat in the strop, took hold below the knot, and nodded. Once more he soared upwards, but this time at a more sedate pace, seated on a short board instead of a thigh-cutting loop of rope, and with the foreknowledge of how to handle himself. He reached the masthead, hooked a knee around the starboard stays to keep from twirling, and looked about him. The sails below him were almost slack, as Cygnus ghosted onward imperceptibly. When he looked straight down, the figures on the deck below him were distorted into squat shapes. Instead of the marvellous illusion of flight, he felt as if he were merely suspended, dangling, no longer soaring like a gull, but nailed to a ship stuck in the water. A great bowl of empty sky was around him, with dark clouds in the west. Estrella scanned around the horizon, and then swung his gaze back to the east, where the rising sun glanced through layers of cloud. Shafts of pink light fell on sails at the horizon, and as he looked he could just make out the individual triangular shapes, which became steadily more clearly visible with every moment. The wind that had abandoned Cygnus was still urging a ship towards them. "'Sail ho!' yelled Estrella. He pointed and looked down to see an acknowledging wave. Then, remembering the pattern of stones in the chart table, he scanned the horizon again. He was so concerned to catch the first glimpse of more sails that he almost missed the boats that were appearing and disappearing between the waves, much closer than the ship whose hull was still below the horizon. "'Boats!' he yelled. "'Ship's boats! But they're being rowed!' 
This time he pointed almost dead ahead. Astrea was about to scan the horizon again when he suddenly felt the boatswain's chair shudder, and then he was plummeting downwards, kicking himself clear of the mast to avoid scraping down the sail or tangling his feet in the halyards. Then he was standing on the deck, which was now crowded with the entire ship's company. "'Must have been twisted. It's lost,' said a voice near him. "'Where's the dirty duck?' Astrea heard the question muttered more than once as he made his way to the command position where Oron and Adramin stood. "'Did you see Spindrift?' Adramin asked. "'I saw what I took to be elusive by the direction from which she sailed. There's nothing else but those boats, and which ship they're from I don't know.' "'Silence!' hissed Oron. "'Speak softly. The men have ears.' The old man drew Astrea and Adram into the very stern of the ship, where the muted sounds of the wake covered anything they said. "'Your evaluation,' he said to Adramin, "'if the boats are from Silver Swan, then she's abandoned, lost. Her stone is still bright. I saw it in the room just minutes ago,' said Astrea. Oron frowned at him. "'If her stone is still alive, that means her navigation gear was saved,' said Adramin. Oron nodded slowly, ignoring Astrea. "'Changes,' said Adramin quietly. "'Without a ship, how can a master have a voice in council?' "'That we shall see,' said Oron, tight-lipped. "'For the present we pick up survivors and prepare for the city of the sea.' Adramin shouted orders as Astrea stood open-mouthed. Now that the ships were gathering, he realized that the city of the sea was not a place on land, but a rendezvous of the men of the sea on their own element and as he compared what he could see with the stones on the plotting-table, he understood how much of it had dwindled from what it once had been. Instead of a cluster of great ships, there were only two, plus four boats carrying what was left from a third. Under a sky increasingly whitened by high cloud, Cygnus was virtually motionless except for the steady rise and fall of the waves. Ropes and scrambling nets dropped down over both her sides, as one by one the boats rowed towards safety. Astrea looked down into them and saw that all four were loaded with more people than they had been designed to carry. As they came alongside, he could see exhaustion in the slow and deliberate movements of the rowers, some of whom reached for the ropes and scrambling nets, while others merely let themselves sag forward onto their oars. Those not rowing sat or lay still, some of them with their arms around each other, some of them slumped, with their heads hanging. Only a few could muster the strength to look up. "'Rig boatswain's chairs! Help them up!' Hadramin shouted. "'What water?' a cracked voice called up from one of the boats. "'Pass us down some water!' Cygnus crewmen hurried to hand down jugs and skins of water. The result amazed Astraea. One moment the men and women in the boats were inert, incapable of moving, but after only a few mouthfuls of water, most were able to stand, clutch the scrambling net, and clamber aboard. Some of the larger and stronger men of Cygnus climbed down to help. Astrea took a step forward to join in the effort, but Oron's thin hand on his shoulder stopped him. "'Wait,' he whispered. One by one the boats took their turn alongside, were emptied of the living, and then drifted astern, roped together in a line." A few moments after the last boat bumped against Cygnus, a black-cloaked figure swung up and over the deck in a boatswain's chair. The master's hand pushed Astrea forward. 
Assist, Silver Swan. Estrella hesitated, then hurried to the figure swathed in a black cloak, still sitting in the gently swinging chair. The toes of booted feet touched the deck in a growing puddle, fed by the water that dripped from the cloak. Behind Astrea, someone thudded his heel on the deck, and the crew took up the cadence. Twenty strokes boomed throughout the ship. As the last echoed away, the figure raised its head, and Astrea stepped forward. "'May I help you?' he asked. Astrea saw a face seamed with lines, grey with exhaustion, looking as if the flesh had somehow slipped down the skull beneath. Sunken greenish eyes, the same colour as his own, peered up at him from below heavy lids. "'Estrella!' The voice was little more than a croak. "'I am his son,' said Estrella. "'Welcome aboard.' The hand he extended was grasped firmly. The haggard face rose almost to his own height. He smelled the sour breath of someone who was not drunk enough water. An age-spotted hand brushed back the hood's cloak, and tangled white hair fell over rounded shoulders. Echoes of Oron's face lay beneath the weather-wrinkled and seamed skin, but there was a kindness in the eyes. With a shock, Astrea saw that she was a woman, and that her deep-set eyes were inspecting him closely, her head on one side. When he did not flinch, her intent expression softened. Astrea all over again, no doubt. Come alongside me, lad. Take me to Cygnus. Astrea obediently moved so that she could lean on his arm. When he glanced towards her, he saw that she was walking erect, creating the impression that his arm was merely a polite gesture. Together they crossed the deck towards Oron. On either side, survivors were still being helped over the rails, swung aboard on slings, and in some cases eased onto stretchers. Some coughed or retched. None seemed able to speak more than a few words, all asking for water. In the few slow steps it took to reach where Oron stood, Astrea noticed that roughly half of the newcomers were women, most of them approaching middle age or older. "'Silver Swan,' said Oron. "'Welcome aboard.' "'Cygnus!' croaked the voice at Estrella's side. "'I have already been welcomed by one I did not expect. "'Estrella's son, Estrella!' "'Evidently. "'It occurred to Estrella that Oron was searching for something to say. "'Are you well, Silver Swan?' "'No, Oron, I'm not. I've lost my ship and the best part of my crew.' I've been in an open boat for five days with not enough to drink, and I'm soaking wet. I would appreciate a little more hospitality and a lot less formality. Fate! Her last word was a hoarse shout. From the deck behind came an immediate answer. At your command. A small sailor with short-cropped iron-gray hair appeared beside them. She wore the coarse shirt and wide breeches of a seaman, but her figure made clear that she was a woman. Astrea guessed her to have seen at least fifty vigorous years at sea. Fate, are the crew getting what they need? Water for all thirty, serious healing needed for six, two touch-and-go but hopeful, shrouds for three, and four others that may not pull through. Cygnus women and men are doing what they can. Eighteen are still able. I'm one of them. Did Rana? The answer was a slow shake of the head. "'Then I'll have to look after myself. "'Lad, take me below. 
I need some help on the companionway. That is, if it's all right with you, Cygnus. Oron raised one hand in a vague gesture of acceptance, ignoring the sarcasm in her last words. The pressure on Astraea's arm increased as the tall woman at his side steadied herself. So, Astraea, you've got a story to tell me, haven't you? Don't start yet. I have to get down these confounded steps. Get me to— Oh, good, it's Kaus. Glad to see you, ma'am. In the dim light of the passage below decks, Astraea saw the stooped shape of Oron's personal servant at the foot of the companionway. Right, lad. Tell me later. You can go back on deck. Kaus here will show me to a cabin where I can square myself off before Elusive arrives, and Cygnus calls one of those blasted meetings where there's nothing to eat and damn little sense. Kaus, water first, then beer, or something stronger, then dry clothes and privacy. When Estrella returned on deck, Oron had gone below. The initial activity had abated, the injured and exhausted were below, the boats were being hauled aboard by a few of Cygnus' crew. So, what did you think of Aunt Maessa? Adraman's mouth twisted cynically. The master's, Oron's, sister, said Estrella. Master, or more accurately, mistress of Silver Swan. Or she was, when she had a ship, which she doesn't any more. Estrella noticed that Adraman repeated the obvious with something close to excitement. He must have known he had said more than was necessary, because he covered his mistake by moving to the middle of the ship and directing sailors who did not need his orders or advice to do what many of them had been doing before he was born. One by one, Silver Swan's boats were being retrieved and hauled aboard, the dead still in them. Men rolled up the scrambling nets into thick sausages, which they lowered over the starboard side of the ship and made fast between the rail and the water-line. As they completed their task, they looked up and astern. Following their gaze, Estrella saw a ship easing through the water to come alongside Cygnus. It crossed Estrella's mind that, had he still been on the molly, he would have been astonished at the size of the vessel, but after living aboard a sister ship, he focused on differences. Unlike Cygnus, she carried triangular staysails between her three masts. Estrella noticed that each of the elusive sails was being managed by only one or two men fewer than was necessary for the same task aboard Cygnus. Elusive ghosted closer towards Cygnus in almost no wind, furling her sails as she came. Finally a single jib provided just enough steerage way for the meeting. Heaving lines arced into the air from both ships and fell across their decks. Sailors caught them, attached them to heavier ropes, which were then hauled back across the watery gap between the ships. Capstans turned, blocks squeaked, and water squeezed out of the tightening ropes until the two ships came closer, closer, and finally their fenders touched with surprising gentleness. Soon the hulls were held together by a criss-cross pattern of hawsers. Then men on both ships removed a section from their ship's rails and installed a gangplank between Elusive and Cygnus. Adraman strode towards it and looked expectantly. From the other ship, a tall, black-clad figure stalked towards him, a blue cloak billowing behind him. When the two were almost face to face, both their right hands swung up in the fist-on-throat salute. Elusive, you are welcome aboard. Cygnus awaits you below. Adramin had to step back quickly to avoid being pushed out of the way by the newcomer. His face contorted momentarily as he regained his balance, and he began hammering his right heel on the deck. 
Immediately all those on deck imitated him, so that the ship's hull boomed like a drum. Astrea copied those around him, counting the strokes. As the count neared twenty, he looked around to make sure that he had kept to the right number, because the pounding suddenly stopped at eighteen. Astrea stood back on two feet, wiggling his toes. The master of elusive marched towards the companionway, and then stopped. "'Drummin, who's this?' he barked at Adramin, and then continued to speak without waiting for a reply. "'Let me guess. It's Estrella's brat, trying hard to look as if he was part of the family. So, young Sprog, with only two ships left, do you think you've brought good luck to the fleet?' "'Luck is chance that falls your way, whether you've earned it or not,' said Estrella, hoping his voice would sound firm. "'Saucy, isn't he? Gets it from his da.' "'Well, little nephew, I am elusive. I love saying that. I'm also your father's brother, Mufred, but you won't call me uncle if you know what's good for you.' Mufred suddenly grabbed Astrea above the elbow, two of his fingers closing on his bracelet hidden by his shirt-sleeve. Taken by surprise, Astrea was almost as quick, but before he could step back or block, Mufred had pulled his hand away as if he'd touched fire. Muttering inaudibly, he resumed his march towards the companionway. Estrella stared after him, his arm tingling. Then light footfalls behind him made him turn to see a smaller, finer, and more hesitant version of Adramin. The boy who followed Mufred was in his teens, younger than Estrella by a couple of years, but with frown lines that grooved his forehead as if on a much older person. As Estrella watched, he looked up at Adramin with an expression more like that of a child, and Estrella saw a quick look of affection pass between the two. A moment later he wondered if he had imagined the smile on Adramin's face so unlike his usual disdain. Mirak, battle, see to the ships. Estrella, my brother Dabby. Estrella and Dabby stepped towards each other, their hands extended. Dabby offered a hesitant smile, but Adramin brushed them apart. No time for talk. Get on with it, we're due below. When they reached the stern cabin, Oron and Mufred were already seated in chairs with arms facing the door. Oron sat erect, his hands folded on top of the charts and papers spread out on the desk in front of him, his pale eyes blank. Mufred sat on his left, as far from Oron as possible. Adramin saluted Oron, as did Dabby. Astrea copied them a little late. Oron indicated the chairs facing him with a long, pointing finger. When they were seated, the old man gave a slight cough, almost as if he were hesitant to begin. However, when he spoke, his thin old man's voice was firm. "'The family is—' he began. Behind Astrea the cabin door slammed open. Adramin and Dabby sprang to their feet, and again, an instant later, Astrea did the same. "'Welcome, Silver Swan,' said Oron. "'We were about to begin.' "'Sit, sit, sit,' said Miasa, waving at the three standing. She walked heavily across the cabin floor, took hold of both arms of a chair near Oron, and lowered herself into it with a sigh. "'Hello, Dabby, young fellow. Met your cousin Estrella yet?' Estrella noticed that the hem of her cloak had left a wet trail from doorway to chair. However, she wore a black jacket, white blouse, and a black skirt that still showed lines where it had been folded. Oron coughed again. "'The family is now assembled,' 
he said, and looked around the faces. We are here at the city of the sea to confirm our oaths and renew our duties. Oh, for goodness sake, Oron, said Mayasa, with the testiness of the very tired. City of the sea it might once have been when we were a dozen new ships. Now you and I are two very old people. All we have is two old tubs that lack everything, spars, sails, metal, and above all, crew. Oron gave no sign that he had heard. Silver Swan, the first question at hand is whether you should continue to be addressed as master. I must determine— Mistress, Mayasa interrupted, and went on, talking Oron down. Commander of nothing in particular, since we were flattened by a rogue wave during a storm, five days rowing from here, thank you so much for asking. We saw it coming, but we were not down anyway. Sails, flat in the ocean. Masts, snapped off. Deck-houses smashed. Water pouring in. And screams. She paused to frown and swallow what might have been a sob, then she composed herself and continued in the same even voice. Don't forget the screams. They didn't last long. Just about everyone below was trapped and drowned. Getting the boats into the water cost more lives. The best of us, too, because they weren't caring for their own safety. And then another, smaller wave finished the job. I watched my swan turtle and sink. Hope you youngsters never see the like of it. Her factual statements were far more powerful than had she shown the emotions Estrella was sure she was feeling. She looked around the table, staring into their eyes with an intimacy that made Estrella realize that she had completely accepted him as family. Finally she turned to Oron. So, brother, it doesn't matter too much what you call me, provided you listen when I say to you that this madness must stop. It's time to go ashore. Oron looked down at the pen in his hand. Astrea glanced around the table. Mufrid's left eyebrow was raised as if at a fresh idea. Adaman's lips were pursed shut. Dabby's index finger hovered close to his mouth. "'Your report of the tragic loss is noted, Silver Swan. Now we must consider reassignment of personnel in accordance with recent addition to our family. Estrella's son, Estrella.' Miasa lifted both her hands to head height and slapped them down onto the table. She bowed her head, and her hair splayed out over her arms in damp grey and black twists. Oron went on speaking as if nothing had happened. I have reached a decision in the light of the circumstances in which we find ourselves. We must proceed to the south, taking advantage of Mufrid's good offices and contacts with the island folk who have supplied us through him over these last few years. In more comfortable waters we can repair and refurbish, and possibly commission another ship or two. Stupid, 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 Estrella heard me as a mutter. To accomplish these tasks we will sail together with the following rearrangements of the family. Adramin will continue as Cygnus Sailing Master. Elusive will accept half the survivors from Silver Swan together with her master, who will navigate and command the women. In order to swiftly bring Dabby and Estrella to an appropriate level of navigational competency, I will undertake to instruct them here aboard Cygnus as we journey southwards. When we are there, 
it is my hope that we may encounter the possibility of securing further vessels to begin the recomposition of the fleet. Senile, came Mias's voice from under her hair. Silver Swan, prepare to establish yourself aboard Elusive. You will surrender your ship's stone to me in the forbidden room. Astrea, Dabby, you will witness. Having lost the function of your stone, Milfred, you are not eligible to attend. Your ring, Adramin, as you know, is not sufficient to admit you. Meosa sat up slowly, reached under her cloak, drew out a soft leather bag, and laid it on the table in front of her. She took out an egg-shaped box, unlatched its lid, and held it open toward Oron. His face glowed green in the light from the stone in its little nest. There you are, Oron. You always wanted it. This is not the place or the way, said Oron, for the first time talking directly to Meosa. This will be done properly, safely, within the forbidden room, so that my grandchildren can witness and learn. Put it back in its case. You will accompany me. Now. Oron stood, and drawing his cloak around him, headed for the door. Dabby rose and saluted, glancing apprehensively at his father as he did so. Adramin scowled at nothing in particular, while Mufrid sat back in his chair, smiling mirthlessly. Astrea got slowly to his feet, his stomach knotted by the emotional cross-currents of which he was a part, whether he wanted it or not. He stood irresolute, while Maessa closed the stone's case, put it back in its bag, levered herself to her feet, and followed Oron and Dabby. Estrella was last to leave the room. As he closed the door, he heard Mufred speak to Adramin. Still no talent for the stones, Dramin? Not like young Debbie, or your new bastard cousin either, I understand. If I still had my... Estrella wanted to hear what Mufred was saying, but Amiesa was standing only a step or so ahead of him. Well, lad, give me your arm. They walked slowly together down the passage to the forbidden room. Estrella is dead, and you wear his clasp. Answer me this, lad. Is your mother alive? Estrella nodded, and as he did so, felt his mind lurch unexpectedly, as if he had been going downstairs and taken one more step. He gave the bracelet and um, clasp to her when they were wed. She wore it for as long as I have been alive, but it was dull until she gave it to me and I put it on. So... Estrella's star sat in the northwest, but rose again on your arm. Now, if we had him here and Gianfar as well, we might be able to talk some sense. What's the matter, lad? My father is dead, and so is Gar, uh, Gianfar. No, he's not. Estrella, yes. Gar, no. I'd have thought so until his stone started shining as brightly as the one you wear. I could see it from Silver Swan. Before he died... Gar gave his bracelet to Lindy. He told me to light it, and, well, I did. She stopped even the pretense of shuffling forward and looked up at Estrella in the dim light. You restarted his stone? He nodded. Her hand gripped his arm more firmly, giving him unexpected confidence. And on a woman? she asked. Can she control it? Somewhat. She hasn't much experience, but amazing. She looked into Estrella's eyes and half-closed her own, as if looking at a bright light. Estrella hazarded a question. Tell me why Gar and my father were, uh, um, uh, sent away. I keep hearing different stories. What really happened? Why were they banished? Simple. 
because Mufred ratted on them about their secret trips ashore, and then Gar lost his temper and said things that the masters couldn't ignore. He spoke about ending the wandering. Astraea stood by him. The masters, we were appalled, couldn't believe anyone would question the fleet's purpose. We reacted furiously. Oron ditched two crewmen who may or may not have been involved, and fudged the whole thing for the crew by pretending he sent the cousins on a mission. He couldn't deep-six his own son and nephew, but he had to silence any talk that the fleet should disband and go ashore. First sign he was losing his grip. First of many. I should have known back then. My fault. I did know, actually, but it was easier to let it slide than make a fight of it. She looked up into his face, the dim light from a lantern at the door of the forbidden room reflecting in her green eyes. "'I'm ashamed to tell you I missed the chance to do what I knew at the time was good sense, and I've never ceased regretting it.' She gave his arm a little shake. "'You have to go with what you know is right, lad, whatever the wind or weather.' Mia suppressed on the metal door of the forbidden room, and it opened to her touch. "'Come on now, lad. The old fart's been waiting long enough.' Estrella looked into the forbidden room. Framed by the doorway on one side, and Mias's cloaked figure on the other, the stones cast their greenish light upward into Oron's lined face, as he leaned over the table, folding the covering and stowing it below the pit-like table-top. Dabby stood beside him, looking much older than his years, his frown accentuated by the light from below. Estrella blinked, hesitating, until Miasa pulled him towards the table, facing Oron. The door closed silently behind them. Oron immediately began to speak. After Miasa's intensity, his voice was impersonal, emotionless. First we renew our vows. Repeat after me. I affirm that I will preserve the ship, obey the masters, keep faith with those who serve throughout the fleet, and shun land until the time foretold, lest corruption be renewed and honour lost. First, the youngest, Dabby. Dabby gabbled the words so quickly and softly that Estrella could hardly follow them. Now, Estrella, I need to say the words. Follow me. I affirm that I will preserve. No, I will not swear to what makes no sense to me. Estrella was surprised by his own assertion, which came from his mouth almost without thought. Oron stared at him like someone wakened from a dream. "'What do you not understand, boy?' the old man's voice wavered, sensing that he had jolted his grandfather out of oft-repeated formulas into the moment. Estrella spoke directly. "'Shun land? You don't. You sent my father and uncle there, and went back to look for them. You sent Adramin for me. Mufred deals for supplies with the landsmen. What's the corruption I'm supposed to shun?' The land is cursed with a pestilence hatched in the years before. All ashore harbour the sickness that— Oh, for goodness sake, Oron, that's not true, and the lad knows it. And you've known it for years, but you won't admit it. Ever since he turned up, it's undeniable. His father went ashore, married, had a child, and the mother still lives. Not what you want to hear, that's for certain, but hear it you must. I must ask you to— We've been wasting our lives because our father Zubin thought that his ship carried infection from port to port. He brought the fleet together and convinced everyone to do his penance for him by wandering around the ocean like a flock of loony birds. 
and then he died, and the rest of us just carried on, carrying on. We made up a backwards version of the real reason, and then let Mufred sneak ashore to steal what we needed. And not just things. We talk of the volunteers he found us, as if they weren't young men and women who were kidnapped to become forced seamen and enslaved baby-makers. And you, you silly old man, you're like your father, letting someone else do the dirty work and pretending it isn't happening. Two wives, both of them dead in childbirth. And what did you care, so long as you had sons? Mufred has been a treacherous little twerp from the beginning, but at least he doesn't even try to hide that he's a pirate. The two of you have stolen Dabby's childhood, and to my discredit I helped the whole stupid, lying perversion continue. First, I believed. I believed that we were cursed, because the women aboard Silver Swan either could not conceive or birthed dead babies. I was willing to go on and on and on, trusting that the childless years might some day be over, and if they weren't, at least we'd all die at sea and the curse with us. I lived with the fact that your sons and their sons came into the world at the price of their mother's lives. I thought it was destiny. I thought it was the price of the stones. It's not. These two lads here are alive, and Astraea's mother as well. That proves it. Enough! Stop! Horwan's voice balanced uneasily between command and entreaty. Miesa easily talked him down. Why, Oron? Because you don't want to hear the truth. Listen, brother mine, you made me do your will for these long years, but that came to an end with my ship and the men and women that went down with her. So, you see, I have nothing to live for. You can stay aboard, Cygnus. You will be— No, thank you. I will not spend whatever's left of my life under your command, thinking about all that I didn't do, did wrong— and can no longer even hope to fix. You can still work the stones. Ha! For you? No, Oron. I'd rather throw Silver Swan's stone into the sea. Oron stared at her. Astraea saw his grandfather's chin rise. Loose skin in his neck rippled as he swallowed to clear his throat before continuing in his distant formal voice. Let us be grateful that I have brought you to your senses before you committed such a wanton act of destruction. Now, you must reverently place your shipstone where it will lie in safety until—until—until until, until a fresh ship can be found. Estrella had heard what had started as an attempt to assert his authority lose its way in uncertainty. Miesa pulled out the leather bag once more and tossed it onto the table, where it rolled towards Cygnus Shipstone. Quick as thought, Oron's arm came up with the hooked stick in his hand and pushed the egg-shaped case back towards Miesa. Two stones together! Would you kill us all?' "'It's shielded,' she shrugged, pushed back her sleeve, and Estrella saw a bracelet somewhat like his own on her arm. Compressed deep into age-softened flesh, its silvery metal was thinner than his, having been polished by many years of use. Meosa leaned on the table facing Oron, her grey hair ghastly in the green light. She spoke as if bargaining with an unruly child. "'You want my clasp on the table, too?' "'Be still!' snapped Oron. Then, calming himself with a visible effort, he continued, "'The ceremony cannot continue until you see reason.' There can be no more mutinous talk in front of the children. Then they had better leave, Oron, because I've barely gotten started. 
I've a lot more to tell you. Oron pursed his lips and then nodded. Very well. Out, both of you. Dabby started for the door, but Estrella hesitated. Go on, Dabby boy, and you too, Estrella. And good luck. Now, Oron, listen to me. We have two ships, three people who can work the stones, and Estrella, a stone starter. The only one, now you and I are past it. One ship is led by a truth-denying dotard. That's you, Oron. Mufrid commands the other. He's the son you rewarded for his deceit by giving him a ship he can't navigate without the help of that poor little boy, Dabby, because Mufrid drowned his stone on one of his thieving adventures ashore. You banished Gar and Estrella on Mufrid's backstabbing words, and to my lasting shame I let you do it. For decades of misplaced loyalty I did nothing. Dabby tugged at Estrella's sleeve, pulling him through the door and pushing it closed behind them, cutting off Mias's words. They went down the hall, stealing glances at each other, not letting their eyes meet. As they passed the master's cabin they heard Mufrid's voice through the closed door, but could not make out what he was saying. In unspoken agreement they climbed the companionway steps to the deck. The two ships rose and fell with the waves, the ropes between them slackening and tightening, as if they wanted to be free of each other. Crew members from both ships were uncharacteristically idle, some of them were in groups near the masts, talking with mugs in their hands. Some men and women stood along the rail, either in pairs or alone, staring at the sea or off toward the horizon. All were subdued, and even those who spoke did so quietly, out of compassion for those mourning the loss of shipmates and friends. Estrella noticed that the crew of Silver Swan were still all aboard Cygnus. Most of them clustered for mutual support in the waist of the ship. Their faces were as varied as the men aboard Cygnus, and like the men, all were middle-aged or older. Many had scars, or moved with the awkwardness of someone crippled in some way. He wondered how many of them had borne dead children, and how many others had died trying to give birth. He looked at Dabby, their eyes met, and both opened their mouths to speak in the same moment. They hesitated, and the moment was lost. Dabby! The shrill call from the gangway between the two ships made Estrella and Dabby turn, just as they were about to speak to each other. "'Becky! Come on over,' said Dabby, turning toward the gangway. A chestnut-haired girl ran from ship to ship so quickly that she barely stopped herself from throwing her arms around Dabby. Estrella recognized her as the girl with whom he had danced at Teenmouth. She had been smiling then, until Eva had plucked him away from her, compelling his attention. Despite the fact that Becky was almost half a head taller than Dabby, they looked into each other's faces with the rapt stare that Estrella had seen between couples at the village. Then he had wondered what they were feeling. Now, because he had known the same urgency toward Lindy, he envied Dabby for the way Becky looked at him, both of them longing to embrace and kiss. Estrella felt himself sinking into a blend of jealousy and longing. He shook his head, and Gar's teaching came back to him. He deliberately committed to memory the slant of their bodies and the tilt of their heads as they leaned towards each other, staying at arm's length only with an effort. His envy faded as the two young people in front of him became a picture in his mind that he might draw. Dabby recovered first. Becky, this is Estrella. Becky stared into Estrella's face. She took a step back. 
Estrella saw her expression change from longing to looking. She smiled, and he saw that although she was totally preoccupied with Dabby, she had recognized him. Estrella, it is you. What happened to your beard? And then the explanations began. Later, Estrella could not remember who had told him what, because Dabby and Becky spoke almost at the same time, completing each other's thoughts, starting and stopping together, gesturing for the other to speak, and then starting again at the same moment. Their stories meshed and mingled, so that at one moment Estrella was learning how Becky had been kidnapped by Mufred's men, and the next, before she could finish, Dabby was stammering a confused account of how the thugs Mufred had used to control his unwilling sailors had killed Spindrift's crew. Then Dabby and Becky were telling him about the meeting with the Molly, and how Yan had been captured, and Red Ian lost. The flow of words had Estrella looking back and forth at their faces to keep up with what they were saying, as he tried to reorder the fragmented tale into a coherent account. And then he was going to kill Yan, but Cam— Cam? Estrella asked. How did he get here? Just lucky, I guess, said a voice beside him, and he looked down into blue eyes almost concealed by a lock of blonde hair. Cam! Smee, you're looking good, man. Black suits you. Me? I go with the browns and greens. But out here on the salt chuck you gotta take what you can get, and this is what they gave me when they kitted me out aboard Elusive. For a moment Estrella stared at Cam, whose presence recalled the familiar and predictable world of the village, so unlike the situation in which they were standing. A part of his mind recorded that Cam still wore his own oversized jacket over the standard bleached white garb worn by Elusive sailors. Mufrig raided the village? Estrella asked. Cam shook his head. Raw and Jack came looking for you in the molly, and I came too. Then, a few days ago, we were boarded by Elusive. They snatched me, Yan and Red Ian, but they soon wished they hadn't. Ian did for two of them, and would have had Mulford dead to rights if they hadn't ganged up on him. Red Ian's aboard Elusive? He's dead, Estrella. Mulford drowned him. I saw him go down, too far from the molly for Scarm and the skipper to get to him. Then I got mixed in with the bunch what got kidnapped from Becky's village. And since then it's been haul this, fetch that, pump this, shovel that. Let me tell you, there ain't no supercargoes aboard that ship. Becky, um, works for Dabby, though I figure she's not complaining. Becky blushed, which accented her freckles, which in turn caused Dabby to stare intently into her face, which made her blush even more. Cam glanced at them and then at Estrella. They keep doing that, he said with a grin. Sweet, innit? Yan's locked up? Estrella asked. Cam nodded. It's not pretty. Yan ditched a great big green stone, grabbed it off Mufrid's table and chucked it out a scuttle. Since then we ain't seen him, but it's certain he's not enjoying the cruise, not at all at all. Mufrid's been playing with him, making him suffer. That man's a piece of work. Oh, watch it, here he comes. "'Cast off! Make sail!' shouted Mufred as he strode towards his ship, his blue cloak flapping. His arms were bare, his sleeves pushed back to the shoulder, and above his left elbow was a silver clasp with a dull stone. Cam leaped back as Mufred was suddenly among them. Becky was not so quick. She stumbled against the rail and would have fallen between the two ships had Dabby not grabbed her arm. Estrella tried to step clear, but Mufrid took him suddenly from behind. Before he could react, Mufrid whirled him around with one hand, tore back his left sleeve, and held Estrella's clasp directly against his own. Light flowed from one stone to the other, rekindling Mufrid's. No! 
Astrea heard two voices chime the same word as he tumbled to the deck like a rag doll. Got it! Mufred celebrated. Twenty heels from now on! He let go of Astrea and grabbed Dabby, who was gaping at what he had seen. Mufred staggered across the gangway to his ship, dragging Dabby behind him, one fist holding the boy's jacket by the collar. Becky ran after them. Oi! Cam shouted, as he was bowled over by the rush of half a dozen men from Elusive who were running across the gangway and onto their ship. Three paused to cast off the lines from their belays on Cygnus. Cam got to his feet and took a step as if to follow them, but the last man thrust him back with a swift blow to his chest. He doubled over, gasping, as sailors dragged the gangplank back onto Elusive. Moments later, ropes splashed into the widening gap between the two vessels. On both ships, men parceled scrambling nets and coiled ropes. "'Signes! Make ready!' shouted Adramin. Estrella heard the order as he got to his hands and knees. Moments later, he heard Mirak's voice. "'Raise the fore and mizzen. Hands to the capstan for the main. Duty steersman to the wheel. Supernumeraries. All of you dirty ducklings, no offence. Go below. Clear out of the way.' When Estrella got slowly to his feet, he saw Mirak standing below the main boom, directing with his voice and both arms. Further astern, at the command position, Adramin paced head down, five steps to starboard, turn, five steps to port, oblivious to everything but his own thoughts. As Estrella watched, his cousin halted, and with a visible effort at calming himself, returned to his customary position as watchkeeper, but he was too tense to maintain his usual negligent pose. His glance systematically checked the set of sails, the wind freshening on the water, and what the men and women on watch were doing. He repeated the sequence twice before he noticed Estrella, and strode towards him. "'You're alive!' he exclaimed. Then he looked at the green stone and the bracelet on Estrella's arm. "'And your stone's still alive, too. After what he did, stealing power from your stone with two shipstones closed aboard, you should be dead!' The ship heeled, and Estrella staggered. He replayed Adramin's word in his mind. Was there relief or regret behind his cousin's amazement? "'Lost your sea-legs,' said Cam. Estrella shook his head, and immediately regretted the action. Cam offered him a steadying hand. "'That was not something I'd want to do again in a hurry. What did that treacherous bastard do? Was it that bracelet?' Cam began, and then glanced at Adramin. Estrella saw Adramin's hands roll into fists as he spoke through clenched teeth. If Oron or Miesa had been on deck, he wouldn't have dared. What are the masters doing? They should know that Elusive's gone hunting Gianfar's stone. It's not my fault. I told Mufrid there was just one stone. Yours, Estrella. And he smacked me a good one on my ear, said no son of his would lie to him, stormed onto deck, and— Adramin was almost gabbling in his rush to excuse himself. "'You didn't lie, Adramin,' said Estrella, "'but you were wrong. "'Gar's stone is ashore, somewhere near Sharton. "'It was right under your nose all along. "'Lindy has it.' "'The yellow-haired girl?' "'Estrella nodded, and then winced as his head swam. "'Adramin turned away, marched five steps to port, "'turned and walked back. "'Estrella, go down to the Forbidden Room, "'see what they're up to, tell them what's happened, "'and find out what we do next. "'I've got us under way. "'They'll need that for certain.' But where, his voice tapered off in uncharacteristic indecision, it crossed Estrella's mind to tell Adramin, Say please, but he decided against it. I'll go with you, said Cam. 
Estrella walked towards the forbidden room. A bone-deep tiredness almost overwhelmed him, making every step an effort. Cam looked at him anxiously. All the way down the companionway, Estrella tried to decide what he would say to two very old people, one of whom was steadfastly denying the impossible situation that the other had so forcefully described. He wondered briefly whether he should admit that he had precipitated the situation by refusing to take the oath, and decided that Miesa had needed no encouragement to speak her mind, that the two old people were his great-aunt and his grandfather complicated the problem, as did the fact that they were both masters who worked the stones. Should he speak directly, as Miesa had done? That might work for her, but he had seen how Oron seemed deaf to anything but stilted, formal speech. Whichever he chose, what he said would irritate one of them. When he reached the door, he first knocked, and when he heard nothing, he placed his left palm on the smooth metal. As he did so, all he could think was that he was determined to get to Lindy before Mufrid could find her. The familiar tingling increased as the door swung open. He took a step inside, where the stones still glowed green. At first glance, the room seemed to be empty. Behind him, he heard Cam's quick, indrawn breath. Wow, that's plenty weird. Estrella stared at where he had left the two masters and saw only the uncovered table glowing green. Master? he asked. There was no answer. He tried again. Grandfather? Aunt? Grandmaster? Finally he imitated Oron's use of the ship's names for their masters. Cygnus? Silver Swan? He started around the table and froze in mid-stride as he almost tripped over a pair of booted feet. He stooped so that his clasp threw greenish light onto the deck and saw two black-cloaked bodies. Oron lay on his back, the whites of his unblinking eyes gleamed green, his mouth agape. Astrea knelt beside him and felt for a pulse on one outstretched wrist, but as soon as he touched the cool skin he knew that his grandfather was dead. Beside him lay Miesa, one arm pillowing her head. Astrea bent over her and gently looped back her hair. Her face was calm, as if she had merely fallen asleep. When he reached for her wrist in a forlorn hope of finding a pulse, there was something in her hand. It was a clasp, the metal wrenched and twisted, the stone dull and lifeless. He stood up and looked into the pit-like centre of the table. Close to the stones that represented Cygnus, Silver Swan, and Elusive lay another bracelet that he recognized as Maesus. Like the one in her dead hand, the silvery metal glinted, but the stone was a jewel no longer. From the way you're looking, things can't be good, Cam's words startled Astrea out of his concentration on the two bodies. He stood and leaned on the table. Across the green pool of light, Cam's face seemed to hang in the air. Behind him, the door had closed. Cam, you're not supposed, he began and then shrugged. Are you all right? Good as can be expected, but hey, Estrella, how about you? You look like you're ready to upchuck. It's the light, said Estrella. It makes everyone look awful. Some more than others, said Cam. Are the old folks dead? Estrella nodded. They were both very old, in their eighties and nineties. Their hearts couldn't take the strain. I don't mean to sound slow, said Cam, but take the strain of what? Neither of them is wearing a clasp, a bracelet like mine. They've worn them all their lives. What's more, they believed that they would die if they took them off. And so, when they took them off, well, 
They died. An hour ago I wouldn't have believed it, but you saw me fall over when Mufrid touched my stone. It felt like having my insides sucked out. Yes, but how? Miessa has Aurons in her hand all twisted. This must be hers on the table. What do you think, Straya? Could it have been an accident? Or did one of them off the other and then feel so bad he did himself? Estrella thought back to what had happened in the room before he and Dabby had left. He answered slowly with a growing conviction that he was right. Miessa's last words to me were, Good luck. I didn't think of it at the time, but that's not what you say to someone who's coming back in a few moments. And before, when we were all in the master's cabin, she talked as if she'd given up on his ever understanding that it was time for the wandering to end. She was planning something, I'm sure. So, what do we do now? A part of Estrella wanted to run from the forbidden room and never return, but at the same time he knew that as the only navigator on board, he was in control of the ship. With Oron gone, he could navigate the ship back to find Lindy, and there was nothing Adramin could do about it. Why not? He muttered, and concentrated on Cygnus Stone. Slowly and hesitantly at first, and then more precisely as his confidence strengthened, he swung the spear of light around until it pointed back the way they had come. Then he shaped a new course for Charton on the ragged shoreline charted on the far side of the table. Nothing happened for a few worrying moments, then running feet hammered on the deck overhead. They felt Cygnus straighten from a slight list to starboard, steady on an even keel, and then heel over to port. Wow, you got power, Strayer. Forcing himself to ignore the bodies even as he stepped carefully over them, Estrella drew the cloth, took a deep breath, and pushed the door of the forbidden room open. Let's go up top. I have to tell Adramin and the crew, two crews, and I don't know how they'll take it. And someone's got to clean up those stiffs, not me. You have been listening to the Estrella Trilogy, Book Two, The Men of the Sea, written and read by Seymour Hamilton. All three books are available in electronic and paper formats from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and Chapters. Visit astreatrilogy.com for more about Astrea's world. This audio version is licensed under the United States Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0.